Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who, ha who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man." Now I was the cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Uh, it is wonderful to see you this morning. My name is Paul. For those of you I haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it is wonderful to gather like this on Sunday, and it's an honor for me uh, every time I have the chance to open the scriptures and preach, to preach from God's word for us. Um, and it's my prayer that God would teach us um, in our time in the text this morning. Happy Father's Day. Before I begin, I wanna say happy Father's Day to you guys who are fathers. Uh, congratulations. I, I'm, it's, it's one of the great honors of my life to be a father. Um, and so I want, for those of you who are fathers, to say happy Father's Day. And for those of you uh, uh, for whom Father's Day is not entirely happy, whether because you uh, want to be a father and have not been able to become one, or whether you have a relationship with a father that is, uh, that is a source of sadness. Uh, I want you to know uh, that whether that is where you are or whether today is a day of joy or whether for many of you, as is probably the case, it's a mixture of both. Uh, God is with us and God sees you and knows you uh, and is there for you in your time of need. So happy Father's Day. Um, however today is celebrated for you, whatever this day brings to your mind, the Lord is with you in it. And we are together as a church uh, with you on Father's Day today. I'm reading a book right now called A Non-Anxious Presence by a guy named Mark Sayers. In this book, Mark Sayers calls, uh, he argues that we find ourselves in what he calls a gray zone. 
a time of transition between one era and another. We're in a time that's marked by controversy and cultural upheaval. The way things were before is no longer the way things are, and it's not exactly clear when the dust settles from the cultural storm that we're experiencing today. It's not exactly clear what things are going to look like when things calm down. And while it's true that the pandemic that we have been walking through has exacerbated this reality, the tectonic plates of our culture uh, had been shifting for some time even beforehand. Structures of authority are shifting, the safety and security we were once accustomed to in the U.S. and in the West um, are either no longer evident or are visibly under threat. When you think about the transition, for example, from the medieval period to the modern era or from the modern era to postmodernism, the timing of those transitions are sometimes only evident in hindsight. And even then, there's a clear gray zone, a time of overlap um, that again, is probably only possible to put your finger on in hindsight. But it's a time of transition where it's not exactly clear what things are going to look like. And Mark Sayers' name for that is a gray zone. And he thinks that right now we are in one of those gray zones. People's view of leadership have changed significantly. Organizations all over the place, from country clubs and PTAs all the way up to the federal government, are racked with controversy. The church, which once enjoyed a large-scale place of authority and reverence in our culture, now no longer enjoys that same authority. On a smaller scale, we're a part at Sojourn of Acts 29, a network of churches that's been walking through a crisis of its own. And you take your pick, the Baptists, the Methodists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, Catholics, Christian institutions all across our culture have been faced with difficult crises over the past few decades. Here at Sojourn, we've had our own piece of that. We've experienced some internal crises of our own um, that have led to some really hard lessons that we've been forced to learn and have led to us being in a place where we're focusing intently on what it looks like to be a healthy leadership culture. Every time another uh, news story breaks or another issue arises, we're confronted by the fact that we have these great and precious promises regarding the renewal of the church and God's intent for the church's role in the world and the fact that things don't look exactly like we wish they looked. In his book, Sayers looks at history and makes the observation that it's often out of gray zone moments like this, though, that God turns out to do incredible things in and through his church. That instead of seeing God working despite these moments in history, in fact, it is precisely within these crises, these, these crises in gray zones that seeds are planted by the Lord that eventually blossom into wonderful moments of renewal and new life. Because of this, Sayers argues that we shouldn't be anxious about these things. We've been here before, if you do any even cursory reading of scripture. Instead, we should lean in to see what God might be doing in this moment. Even now, Sayers argues, we're seeing fresh shoots of growth that signal the beginnings of renewal in the church across the world. And this is also true here at Sojourn. We have a number of people in our church who are gathering together with elders focused on some really key and important initiatives focused on the health and growth of our church. I've also had a number of unprompted conversations with, with you guys, um, with people asking questions about what it looks like to, to develop healthier rhythms personally or, or as a family to lean in and disciple one another in the context of parish life, to get together, whatever it looks like, uh, to pray, to enjoy fellowship with one another, to see, to lean in, to see what God might do. 
as a church right now, it feels very much like we're leaning in together right now, coming out of COVID, wanting to see the Lord move. And that's not to say that things are looking exactly like finally, like we, what we want them to be, but it's actually quite the opposite. <laughs> There's this godly dissatisfaction, discontentment with where we are and a desire in our church. It's felt at the level of, of our elders all the way down to the members of our church. There's a desire to see the Lord move to experience the Lord's love and power among us as we experience God afresh together. And so that, if you ask me, is a sign that God is moving in our church in the middle of this moment. And into this moment in our church and in our culture, we're beginning a series through the book of Nehemiah. It's hard to think of a book better suited for a time of yearning for renewal and rebuilding. You might uh, be familiar with the story of Nehemiah, that he's the one who leads the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem as a part of seeing the renewal and restoration of the whole city of Jerusalem, which had been destroyed generations before. And as we've seen before here at Sojourn, as, and as we'll consider through this series, this work of city building and renewal is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. In a sense, we too, have been commissioned to build a city, the holy city, the church. To jump for a moment to the book of Revelation, the final book of the New Testament, we read in Revelation about the coming of the new Jerusalem, the culmination of God's work in the world, the place where God and man will dwell together, the final temple, as it were. And we see that this temple that God is preparing for us is a city. And the building blocks of this temple city are people from all the families of the earth, unified in Christ and being built into a grand structure. This is what the church is. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So as we look at Nehemiah and the example of this book, uh, that this book gives us of city building, we will also see themes that echo throughout scripture returning to the book of Nehemiah to learn how we are to build the city of God here in Houston. And it's my prayer that God would use our time together this morning and throughout this series to speak to us in this moment um, in our lives as we lean in together to, to yearn for the renewal that the, only the Lord can bring. So with that said, let's turn in our Bibles, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, if you haven't already, even though the story takes place relatively late in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, it's one of the last things chronologically that happens in the Old Testament. It's, it actually is smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament, about a, just, more, just over a third of the way through the Bible, after Kings and Chronicles, before the book of Psalms. The best way to introduce the book of Nehemiah is to jump right in and look at how the book introduces itself. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
There's a number of names and places we're given here. We're introduced, of course, to Nehemiah, the writer of the book. Uh, we don't know exactly who his father, Hakaliah, is, but we do know, uh, as we learn, all, as we go on the story, that Nehemiah is an Israelite Jew, and he is something of a leader in God's people. He's currently in Susa the Citadel, which is the winter residence of the king of Persia, the emperor of Persia, uh, during the month of Kislev, which is probably from partway through November to partway through December. And down at the end of verse 11, we learn that Nehemiah is in Susa because he is cupbearer to the king. The cupbearer um, is the person who drinks the cup, any cup that's given to the king, the cupbearer drinks the cup to make sure it's not poisoned. So the cupbearer role is a dangerous role. However, since the cupbearer was with the king much of the time, it was actually turned into, it became a, a position of great influence in the kingdom. The cupbearer became something of a confidant for the emperor, uh, someone that the, the, the king would lean on for counsel. And so it would have been a close personal relationship with the king of Persia. Even in this position of influence though, Nehemiah is deeply concerned for his people, uh, the Jews. And when Hanani, his brother comes with some friends, Nehemiah asks about his people. The report is that they're in shame. The defenses of Jerusalem have been broken down and they're in ruin. And so this is the occasioning incident for the action of the entire book. Nehemiah is brokenhearted at the state of his people and Jerusalem. And, excuse me, he devotes himself to the work of renewal. So this morning, as we begin with chapter one, the main point that we're going to see is that renewal begins with repentance. That's the main point that we see in Nehemiah chapter one. Renewal begins with repentance. And as we walk through this passage, we're gonna see this main theme as we walk through three primary observations. We're gonna look at the importance of place, at the importance of posture, and at the importance of people. And so let's jump in. We'll begin with the first observation, the importance of place. When Nehemiah asked his brother and those men uh, about his people, he hears that the remnant is in great trouble and shame and that the wall and gates of Jerusalem have been broken and destroyed. And so at this, Nehemiah is undone. He mourns. He, uh, he sits down and weeps. Uh, for the next few days, he continues mourning and fasting and praying. And the question that we begin by pausing on is why is Nehemiah so sad? The short answer, of course, is that Jerusalem is in shambles. But it's worth pausing to consider what this means and really why he was asking this question in the first place. In verse two, Nehemiah tells us that he asked his brother concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And so as to not assume that we all know what Nehemiah is talking about here, uh, to give a quick historical overview, I want us to locate the book of Nehemiah in the time of God's people. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, um, you know that it's through Moses that the law was given. It's about a thousand years before the book of Nehemiah. That the people of Israel are made into a nation through Moses and national worship is established. There are wandering people in the days of Moses. And so God establishes his presence with them in what he calls the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that can be picked up and taken with them wherever they wander to, wherever the Lord leads them to. And when God gives them the law through Moses, there's this section of the law given in Deuteronomy chapter 30 called the blessings and cursings, where God promises his people that if they worship him and follow his law, they will receive the blessings of provision, security, and the promised land, and that God will be with them. 
If, though, they fail to worship him and follow his law, they will lose all of these things, including God's presence. Even so, God, doesn't, God promises not to leave them forever um, if they turn back to the Lord in repentance. Um, as you hear, you'll recognize those words from Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah prays based upon this promise from God. If they turn back to the Lord in repentance, God will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. So from the days of Moses, very quickly, a cycle begins of faithfulness, gratitude for God that leads to blessing and provision from God that leads to complacency, that leads to rebellion, that leads to judgment, that then leads to repentance and faithfulness, that leads to blessing and provision and then rebellion and so forth. And there's this cycle that begins that we trace through the whole story of the Old Testament is basically repeated cycles of faithfulness and rebellion, faithfulness and rebellion in the life of God's people. Eventually, uh, 500 years or so after the days of Moses, God establishes the monarchy with King David, who builds, who takes the tabernacle and, turn, and builds the temple. And God's presence takes place in a permanent structure in Jerusalem. Um, and so God takes up his permanent dwelling place in the city of Jerusalem, the city built on Mount Zion, the city of Zion, the city of light. Uh, but then in the very next generation after David, he has a son, or excuse me, David's son Solomon builds the temple. And in the very next generation, the kingdom splits due to rebellion uh, between Northern kingdom and Southern kingdom. And then eventually a few generations later, after a few more cycles of rebellion against God, the kingdom of Assyria invades the Northern kingdom. Babylon invades the Southern kingdom. Uh, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed and all of God's people are sent into exile. Eventually, however, so this happens, this happens in about between five and 700 BC. Eventually though, the Persian empire comes in and invades and conquers Babylon. And the Persian emperor Cyrus, which is one of the passages that Dodds read for us a moment ago, issues an edict. He's a Persian emperor named Cyrus who allows the Jews to return to the land and in particular to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And so in about 450 BC, Ezra comes in, he institutes some religious reforms, oversees the rebuilding of the temple and sees the temple wall being, uh, beginning to be built. And then it gets interrupted. And then about 20 years later, we come to Nehemiah who comes in and finishes the work of the temple. And so all of that said, when Nehemiah asks about the Jews who survived the exile and about Jerusalem, this is the people he's talking about the people who had demonstrated generations of wickedness and rebellion, who had been carted off into exile, but who the Lord had nevertheless returned to the land. And it's important to notice the promise, excuse me, the prominent role that Jerusalem plays in the history of God's people. Jerusalem is a name that literally means the city of peace, of shalom. And the reason for this is that it was the place where God dwelt with man, bringing peace and blessing and security. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned and were removed from the Garden of Eden, the original place where God and man had dwelt together, God had promised them renewal. You fast forward to Abraham when God chooses from among humanity the man whose family would become a blessing to the nations. We see that Moses makes them a nation, gives them a law, and God takes up his dwelling place once again with man. And when the temple is built, it seems as though this new Eden, this Jerusalem had been established. There was great promise. It was a beacon of light. Eden had been reversed because we have Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of God, where God dwells. 
And so Jerusalem had become this long promised place of safety and security for God's people, this home that would be the location of their dwelling place with God. And so when Jerusalem fell to Babylon and the temple of God was destroyed, you can understand that this was a huge event. God's people had known since the days of Moses that if they kept the law, God would bless them. And if they didn't, they would receive judgment. They had experienced this time and time again, but they'd always had the temple, the presence of God to turn back to and to be restored. This calls to mind, there's a, there's a prayer that King Solomon, when he had built the temple, he prayed, 1 Kings chapter 8. And he asked God to be patient with his people if they sinned. And he said this, he said, God, if they are carried away captive but then repent and pray to you towards your land and towards the house that I've built for your name. Please hear them and forgive and have mercy on them. On account of this prayer of Solomon, there was a practice in Judaism of making sure that you knew wherever you were, which direction Jerusalem was. So that whenever you prayed to the Lord, you could pray in the direction of the temple in line with Solomon's prayer. And so when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple, the house that Solomon had built for God's name was destroyed, this reached down to the very identity of God's people, the core of their identity. It was so climactic, in fact, that there's an entire book of the Bible written about it. The book of Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But God in his mercy, of course, did not leave them there. He continued to pursue his people. He had promised through the prophets that he would unite them and restore them once again to Jerusalem. And sure enough, here in the days of Nehemiah, the exiles have returned. The restoration process of God is in effect. There's lots of hope. The promises of God are being fulfilled. Babylon, who had carted them off into exile and destroyed Jerusalem, had been defeated by Persia, and Persia had brought them in and paid for the rebuilding of the temple. And so with this in mind, Nehemiah asks his brother, he says, tell me, how is the restoration process going? And their response is terribly. Yes, the temple has been rebuilt. Yes, the exiles have returned to Jerusalem. But what was once a place of peace and security has broken walls and burned down gates and is a place of vulnerability and shame. So why was Nehemiah so sad? On the one hand, his sadness would undoubtedly uh, have been connected to the collective sadness of God's people at the loss of Jerusalem and the temple. It's hard to overemphasize the collective shame that God's people experienced at losing the city of Jerusalem. Beyond that, though, Nehemiah's sadness would have probably been primarily in this instance due to the current state of the return. God had promised restoration in Jerusalem. God had promised, even when they were in exile, that he would restore them and to Jerusalem and would restore Jerusalem itself. And what they were seeing was not the restoration that they had in mind when they considered God's promises. Isaiah had spoken of the Lord coming in his might to renew Jerusalem, to uplift every valley, to level every mountain, to give them victory over all their enemies. Jeremiah had spoken of the reunion of the northern and southern kingdoms, a kingdom marked by righteousness and justice, of songs of joy and gladness over all that God has done and provided. We could go on. The prophets are full of glorious promises of restoration. But what they were seeing, what Nehemiah was seeing, was far from glorious in comparison with the promises that God had made. What they saw was a group of exiles limping back to their homes 
with disheveled hair, short on resources, at the mercy of this foreign king of Persia. When we look around at the mission of the church today, at the status uh, of the mission that God uh, has, uh, has been working in the church, that the church has demonstrated in our country, it's hard not to have a similar burst of sadness. When we consider the glorious promises of God made to his church, the beautiful calling of God made to his church. It's hard when we consider the words of Jesus's prayer in John 17, for example, for the unity of church, of the church, that we might be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. It's hard to look around and see the number of Christian denominations continuing to grow as Christian brothers and sisters split and divide from one another, another over this or that issue. It's become difficult to read online discussions between Christians regarding contemporary political issues due to things like harshness and a lack of charity and what seems to be an increasing confusion of gospel hope with political power and success. It seems that every other week we hear a story about another church mired in crisis or another pastor who's fallen to moral failure. And so when, when I look into the Bible and think about the kind of renewal that I want to see today in line with the truths contained in the Bible. And then I look around at the surrounding culture, just like Nehemiah did, I too get a burst of sadness. And I know I'm not the only one. The question is, what do we do with this? When we become burdened with the way that things are, what do we do with this distress? What does Nehemiah do? He prays. And the way he prays is critical for us to notice. His people are in shame and distress. The first thing that he does is pray. He addresses God. And, and it's not just any kind of prayer. As we're going to see, he addresses God and he confesses sin. Look at verses 5 through 7. And I said, O Lord God of heaven... This is Nehemiah's prayer. O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses. So God's people had lost their land. And while they've returned here, their return had not gone according to expectation. And why is this? What's the problem that Nehemiah jumps to first? The problem that they were facing even now was the problem that had forced them into exile in the first place. Their sin and their rebellion against God. You might have heard it said that when you're trying to solve a problem, the most important step in any problem-solving process is the first step, which is defining the problem. Too often, you hear stories of people seeing and acknowledging that there is a problem and then picking stuff up and just going and starting to do things. And you might wind up with a lot of really productive work that's building in exactly the wrong direction because you've misunderstood the problem if you skip the first and very most important part of any problem-solving process. Do you understand the actual problem that exists? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this really interesting teaching that you're probably familiar with. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And then he says this, 
He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is really interesting teaching. And in it, I think Jesus kind of puts his finger on the heart of the human condition. It is really easy for us to point out the problems that others have. And in so doing, to miss that we ourselves are part of the problem. When we see someone else doing something wrong, we have a tendency to elevate ourselves over them to put them down, to lift ourselves up and say, oh, how terrible that this person has done that. I would not do something like that. That is what Jesus says when he says, don't judge one another. You see, one of the great temptations when things go wrong in our lives, whether we're talking about individually or communally, we immediately contend to turn and start blaming people and distancing ourselves from them. It's what happened in the event of the first sin with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they had committed the first sin, uh, God comes and says, Adam, what have you done? She made me do it. Eve, what have you done? The serpent made me do it. Finger pointing and blame shifting is as old as sin, as they say. And this is what we tend to do when crisis hits. We have an impulse kind of hardwired into us to immediately turn and look for who the problem is and kick them out to disassociate ourselves with them. That's not what we see here though. If you look, Nehemiah doesn't rage at the foreign nations who were every bit as wicked as he could have identified them to be. He doesn't complain to God about Persia. He doesn't complain to God about the people in the surrounding region who have been complaining about the Jews and interrupting their efforts to rebuild Jerusalem and its defenses. He doesn't even complain to God about the other Jews who are not as holy or repentant as he is. No, he simply says, oh Lord God, let your ear be attentive to the prayer I pray before you, confessing the sins of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned against you. Without qualification, without making any kind of, you know, God, I know I didn't do this, but I just want to confess on behalf of my brothers and sisters. There is no qualification. Nehemiah completely identifies with his people. And he confesses his sin, his family's sin, and the sins of the whole people of Israel. And it's worth pausing on this for a moment because I think it's difficult for us to wrap our heads and our hearts around this in today's world. We've been so conditioned by Western individualism that we balk often at the idea of repenting for or on behalf of the sins of a group. According to the scriptures, however, sin is the great leveling reality of the human condition. The apostle Paul emphasizes for us in Romans that no one is righteous, no, not one. When we see a brother or sister in sin, our impulse should not be to say, thank God I am not like this one even as it so often is, our impulse should be repentance and compassion. Even in, the line, uh, in line with Jesus' teaching, compassion for our enemies. 
All have sinned, the Bible tells us, and fall short of the glory of God, and all are in need of his mercy and grace. Now, of course, practically speaking, there are certainly times when there are particular people who deserve blame for things. This was certainly true in Nehemiah's day. He could have looked at the wicked kings. God, if only Rehoboam hadn't split the kingdom. If only Ahaz hadn't worshiped idols, if only Jehoiakim had led righteously and defended against Babylon, if only Zedekiah had reformed our worship when he had the opportunity. He would have been right. Those kings were worthy of blame. He could have had his eyes on those he knew personally in his life who were cowardly, who didn't honor God in all that they did. Eventually, we'll get to how some of that comes to play even in the book of Nehemiah later, but that's not where Nehemiah begins. That's what I want us to see. He begins with focusing on sins, not just his own, but his whole people, identifying himself with them, including those who had gone before him. To illustrate this briefly, in our day, there's a conversation about reparations that's been going on for some time. You might have heard of this conversation about reparations and whether reparations are due for the descendants of American slaves. And this is a controversial question, of course, but regardless of where you land on the answer to that question, it is worth noting that there is one answer that I've actually seen and heard of that is unbiblical in line with this teaching. It is unbiblical for us as Christians to hold the position that we have nothing to repent of with respect to slavery because we are not the ones who own slaves. I don't know if you've heard of that before. There are those who in the conversation around reparations say we have nothing to repent of because we didn't hold slaves. According to Nehemiah's example, that's actually an unbiblical position for us to hold. Regardless of where you lie, I'm not saying that doesn't, now let me back up. I'm a pastor, I'm not a politician, right? I won't tell you whether or not we should be advocating for reparations, but regardless of where you land on that, to hold to that position is frankly not biblical. Like Jesus will come to do generations later, Nehemiah repents here for sins that he did not commit. He repents for the sins of his fathers, the sins of his people, and why? Because according to the Bible, I don't look at someone who has done wrong and thank God that he didn't make me like him or her. Instead, I look at a person who has done wrong and confess that my heart is the same. I too am a sinner in need of God's grace. Apart from the mercy of God renewing my heart, I would be just as this. Sin divides. God, through the mercy and grace of the gospel, unites. The first step in seeing the renewing, unifying work of the gospel is repentance. Rather than seeking to prop ourselves up on the backs of others, further contributing to the problems of division and violence in the world, repentance looks like getting low alongside everyone else and letting God raise us up in his mercy and in accordance with his pleasure. Sin seeks to divide us one from another, to keep us looking and saying, you're the problem, you're the problem, get away from me. The gospel of repent, through repentance is one of unity and uniting. And so when Nehemiah hears the report of his people, 
who remain in trouble and shame with Jerusalem in shambles. Rather than jumping to action in his own strength and in his own self-righteousness, he bows his head before God in repentance and unites himself with his people. They are all in need of the mercy of God. And the real problem that needs to be dealt with is the problem that is inside every single one of their hearts. It's the problem of sin. And this prayer of confession does at least two critical things. First, as we've looked at it, it names the problem correctly. And second, Nehemiah's prayer looks to the only one who can truly address this problem and provide the solution. The ultimate problem is that God's people had abandoned their God. And the truth is that the renewal that they yearned for could not come about without God. The Bible is full of warnings of what happens when men and women trust in themselves. Psalm 146 warns us not to put our trust in princes and the sons of men in whom there is no salvation. But instead, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. You see, at the time, the Persian Empire was powerful and it promised a good life. Nehemiah was in a place of influence and he could have gone straight to King Artaxerxes with his petition. Later in the history of God's people, it would be Rome and the peace and security that, 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 that Rome purported to offer. For today, it could be the U.S., the banner of the free world, the protector of the world order that can provide the peace and security that we long for. The problem, though, is that without God, any glimpse of peace and security will be at best fleeting and, to be more realistic, will be an illusion with those experiencing peace and prosperity often doing so, whether wittingly or unwittingly, at the expense of the exploitation of others. When God is, out, is removed from the equation, things break. And when Nehemiah prays, we see him praying in line with this wisdom. With this wisdom, We see where his confidence is. When he hears of his people in trouble, he weeps and he brings his prayer before God. His confidence, his trust in God, you see, is not a trust characterized by toxic positivity. You know what I'm talking about? He doesn't look around and say, hey guys, why are you sad? We have God. God is on our side. Everyone probably knows one or two of those people. Nehemiah's trust in God is solid. It is rock solid, but it is not toxic. He engages the sadness. His sadness, though, is not a wallowing sadness. It's not a sadness that chooses to, to, to wallow in melancholy and darkness. It is a directed sadness. He engages with the sadness of the state of God's people and then brings it to the Lord and says, please do something. Nehemiah's expectancy is that help will come from the Lord. And so in this, we see the importance of posture. Sojourn, when we are confronted with the sadness of things not being as they should be in the world around us, whether we're talking about out there in the culture, in here, in the church, it is appropriate to respond with sadness and disappointment. It is appropriate to respond with distress, with, with a deep desire and yearning for renewal. It's not hard to be brought to this place when we look at the world around us, when we look at what's going on in the world, it's not hard to be brought to this place of distress, but the question is, where do we go with that? What posture does that bring us into? What posture does that bring you when you encounter the distress when you engage with the sadness of seeing the world around you, not as it should be, what does that do to you? Does it cause you to puff yourself up and put others down? 
Does it cause you to point a finger and try to distance yourself from the people who are doing wrong? Does it cause you to, to fall into a partisan spirit, just dogmatic assertions, entrenching yourself apart from those who are wrong? Does it cause you to get angrier and angrier, just waiting to take vengeance? Or does the brokenness of the world around you, the sin that is present in the world around you, remind you that your heart is every bit as fallen and sinful as theirs, apart from God's grace? And does that call you into, into a place of repentance and faith? God, forgive me for how I can think of myself before others. Forgive me for how I put my trust in things and people that are other than you. Please forgive us, Lord, as people for failing to honor you as our God and King. Please forgive your church, heal our hearts, renew a right spirit within us. Is that the posture? We see in the book of Nehemiah that this is where renewal begins. Renewal does not begin with judgment. Renewal does not begin with anger. Renewal does not begin with pride. Renewal begins with repentance. You see, the reason this is so important is because of what renewal is about. Look at how Nehemiah finishes his prayer. He addresses God. He confesses sins. He then appeals to God's character and mercy, his promises that God would make good on them. And then right there in verse 11, Nehemiah says this. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now there's a lot in there, but what I, I want us to see one thing in this right now. Nehemiah doesn't pray that God would somehow miraculously pluck him and his people out of these circumstances and fix everything for them. Instead, Nehemiah prays and then offers himself in service to the Lord. He says, Lord, forgive us, restore us. And then he says, okay, Lord, I'm here and I'm ready to get to work. Throughout the Bible, we see that God is always working in the world to bring about his purposes. And we see that his chosen method of working in the world is through people. Humanity was created by God to be his vice regents in the world, stewarding the earth and cultivating it for his purposes. And when humanity fell into sin, God didn't abandon these purposes for humanity. Instead, he purposed to redeem them. Not so that he could pluck saved people and sit them on clouds with golden harps for all eternity, but so that he could put them back to work, back to the purpose for which he created them. Nehemiah was burdened. He bowed before God in confession and prayer, and then he put himself forward as willing to work towards the solution. If you're familiar with the story of Isaiah and the call of Isaiah, the prophet, it's the same thing. He gets called before God. He hits his face in confession and repentance. And then when God speaks a word of mercy, the very next thing God says is, I need to send someone to my people who will go. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. The question is, what, what is it for you? What is it in the world that you are burdened about? through which the Lord is calling you into prayer and repentance and cultivating in you a willingness to be used. It could, I have a high school English teacher back in high school, 12th grade. Uh, one of my, the most influence, uh, teacher, influential teachers in my life was a, was a teacher named Dr. K.R. Uh, she was a wonderful teacher. She taught AP English. And then towards the end of my senior year, she looked at us uh, in, in the class um, and said, 
Okay, I want to tell you guys something that you guys probably need to know. We were all kind of getting ready to graduate college. Uh, many of us were headed off, or excuse me, graduate high school. Many of us were getting ready to head off to college. And she said, let me tell you something right now. The thing that you think that you want to be when you grow up is probably going to change. The thing that you want to major in in college, you're probably going to change your mind. And then you may even change your mind again. When that happens, don't worry. You probably don't have an idea right now of what you want to be when you grow up, even if you think you do. And then she said, so she said that just to kind of set our expectations for the next few years of our lives. And then she said, as you go through asking this question of what you want to be when you grow up, consider this question. What frustrates you most about the world? She used a slightly stronger phrase than that. I'm paraphrasing. What frustrates you most about the world? Just remember that question. Chances are, you have been wired and gifted and passioned to be a part of the solution to that problem. I found out later, this is before I was, became a Christian, found out later that she is a, a Christian. And that's a good question for us to, to keep in mind. When we see the world around and we think about what could tempt us toward anger and frustration, chances are the Lord has put in within you at least a small part of what might be contributing to the solution for that problem. And so what is it for you? It could be something in the world around, it could be something right here at Sojourn. I wanna go back and say one more thing about the city of Jerusalem as I get ready to close. In the days of Nehemiah, the goal was to reestablish the city of Jerusalem and with Jerusalem to establish, to reestablish peace and security around the worship of God in the temple. This is why Jerusalem was so central to God's people. Jerusalem wasn't important to them as a place because it was on the most precious piece of land in the world. It wasn't even the most important place to them because it was their home and it was what they were used to and they wanted to go back because it was where they were comfortable. The reason Jerusalem was so central and important was because Jerusalem was where the presence of God dwelled. Jerusalem, the city of God, was supposed to be a city on a hill, a beacon to the nations. Israel was supposed to be the people through whom the nations would be blessed. But repeatedly, they turned from God. And so God scattered them, allowing the temple to be destroyed. But God wasn't finished. When Nehemiah gets to work rebuilding the city, he's engaging with the work that God had been doing all along, preparing a city for himself. When Nehemiah was dismayed at the state of God's people and the contrast between God's promises and the reality, he was right in part because the promises that God gave were far greater than rebuilding a single city. Ultimately, the physical city of Jerusalem pointed forward to something far greater. When Jesus came, he said something that astonished the Jews. He said, destroy the temple and I will raise it in three days. Of course, he was speaking about his body, which would raise from death three days after the cross. You see, God's people had been looking for renewal and in the life and ministry of Jesus, the ultimate renewal that they had been waiting for was right in front of them. The physical temple made by human hands was going to be replaced by the flesh and blood temple made by God's hands. Jesus himself as the cornerstone of a new temple being built not just by rocks and stones and sticks, but by living stones. Men, women, and children who wouldn't need to go to the temple anymore to access the law because the law would be written on their hearts. You see, the enemies of Jerusalem are not the enemy nations that took rock from rock and stick from stick when they were destroying Jerusalem. The real enemies of God's people are Satan, sin, and death, each of which 
has been defeated by Christ, the firstborn from the dead and the first fruit of a new and renewed creation. The work that God is doing in the world is building a new city. And the place where that building begins for every one of us is here where Nehemiah begins. Repentance. Repentance and faith. Not a repentance that causes us to wallow in shame and guilt and woe in me, but a repentance that leads us toward God who can shower us with mercy and say, who will go? To which we can merely respond, here am I, God, send me. Brothers and sisters, repentance is the doorway to renewal. As we walk through the book of Jeremiah, I hope that we can keep in mind that this work that Nehemiah begins and carries through, the confidence that is described, all that God does through this book begins with repentance. We're in an anxious age in our culture where the world is seemingly going crazy day by day. And it can be tempted to get worked up by what is going on. But it's important to remember that the solution, that first off, this is nothing new. As Sayers argues in his book, there's been gray zones before, but we can be confident that it is precisely in moments like this, where it seems like all is breaking loose, that we realize where our true foundation is. It's not in political power or physical safety and security that the government can give us. It is in the gospel with Christ as the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets as the foundation and the house that we are building together with the Lord by his spirit. And so, Sojourn, may we be a church that leans in through repentance to find access to the faith that will unite us and lead us forward for the renewal of the world. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this book, uh, Nehemiah, where we see a picture of building the city of God. Lord, as we consider where we are today as a church, where we are just in world history, I pray that you would remind us of the importance of posture in the world. That the solution is not a group of people who will pick up swords, swords and violently take over the powers of the world. The solution is not a group of people who get all the right answers and judge all those who get the wrong answers out of our community. The answer is a repentant people who see ourselves uh, rightly um, as sons and daughters in your, uh, who you desire to have in your kingdom working to build this city, but as people who are together with the rest of humanity in our need of you and your mercy. And so help us, Lord, to be a people who repent as we yearn for renewal, for new life, for health, for the fulfillment of your promises, I pray that you would teach us to repent. Teach us the gift and grace that is godly repentance. Protect us from efforts that would tend towards works-based penance and help us, Lord, instead to focus on you as we repent, as we lean into you for mercy, as we receive it, and then as you put us to work. Lord, we want to be agents for good in the world. And we cannot do that without you. So please do your work in us, in us as a church, for your glory, for the good of our neighbors, and for the good of our souls. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.